0: Good morning. Peace be with you. Hey, have you ever written uh, an email late at night that was kind of a passionate email or emotionally charged, and then right as you're about to hit send, something deep within you is like, you know what, why don't we just go ahead and sleep on this for the evening, and we can reevaluate and reassess in the morning. Anyone else ever done that? Uh, Usually what happens when you get up in the morning is you look at the email and you think either A, like let's soften this up or let's tone this down, or B, you just say, you know what, let's just drop it all together. But every once in a while, maybe for some of you, you get up in the morning, you read the email, and even though you know the message you've written is emotionally charged, even though you know it's going to ruffle some feathers and stir the pot, even though you know it's probably going to bring some greater conflict You hit send anyway, because what you wrote needed to be said. Let the chips fall as it may. Well, that's the book of Galatians. Galatians is the first letter we have, most likely from the Apostle Paul. And there is a rawness to this book. It is a very raw, uh, it's filled with this emotional intensity that stands out and makes Galatians Pretty unique in Paul's writings. And if you read it from beginning to end, you'll find yourself asking, why is Paul so fired up? Because Paul, he's angry. He's not sinfully angry, but he is angry and fired up in writing this letter. And why is he so fired up? And the answer to that question could be summed up in one word, and that word's freedom. See, there were some teachers that had crept into these churches in Galatia, which is in modern-day Turkey, they came in and they started teaching something a little different than what Paul taught. And Paul said, if you listen to their teaching, then it's going to completely undermine the freedom that Jesus secured for you. You know, we as Americans in particular, we love freedom. That's why we're passionate about politics. It's at least part of the reason we blow stuff up every July. Uh, like, we, we care a lot about freedom. We're passionate about it. But the freedom Paul's talking about here goes so much deeper. And I think it speaks to one of the deepest longings of the human heart. At the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the promise of freedom. In the text Whitney read just a few minutes ago, Jesus himself said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The promise that Jesus has given us is that in him we can experience real freedom And yet, when I look at the church, when I look at my own life—if you were to examine your own life—how many of us really feel free? How many of us feel like, "Yeah, I feel absolutely free"? How many of us we feel sometimes like following Jesus is anything but freedom? This morning, I want to use this intro that Paul wrote—the intro to the letter—to talk about this concept of Christian freedom. And what it means to be free in Jesus. And I'm going to show you how Paul, he's laying the foundation here for everything else he's going to say. And in particular, I want to look at three things. One, the life of freedom Jesus has secured for us is, number one, it's greater than you think. Number two, it's freer than you can comprehend. And number three, it's harder than you can imagine. So it's greater, it's freer, but it's harder. Let's start with the greater. What, is, what do I mean when I say the life of freedom Jesus offers is greater than we can imagine? Well, Paul says in verses 3 and 4, he tells us uh, kind of the essence of what Christ has come to do. Number one, he's come to bring us peace with God. And number two, he's come to rescue us, deliver us from this present evil age. And I think a lot of us are going to ask or wonder, how does peace with God and being rescued from this present evil age, what does that have to do with freedom? Well, what is freedom? How would you define freedom? When you hear the word freedom, what goes through your mind? I think a lot of us, we would define freedom something like this. Freedom is the ability to do whatever you want. Whenever you want. Freedom is living with no restraints and no constraints. Freedom is absolute autonomy. This notion of freedom that I think is very common among us was probably, at least most recently, best immortalized in the words of the philosopher Elsa uh, in the Disney movie Frozen. When she's saying, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong no rules for me, I'm free. That sums it up, right? Freedom is I can do whatever I want. No one's bossing me around. I don't have any responsibilities tying me down. I'm absolutely free. And I would say if that's your understanding of freedom, then the claims Paul makes, the claims Jesus makes about the freedom that we have in him, they're never gonna make sense to you. But I would submit to you that that notion of freedom, living without constraints, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, that's not true freedom. It might be independence. It might be autonomy. But it's not freedom. And while words like freedom and independence, they might seem synonymous to us, in the Bible those are two radically different concepts. Freedom in the Bible always leads to flourishing, Independence always leads to isolation, shame, and suffering. Let me say that again. Freedom in the Bible always leads to flourishing. Independence or autonomy, they always lead to isolation, to suffering, and shame. You know, when Frozen came out, many Christians were deeply concerned with some of the messages in the movie. And I'll just come right out and say that Frozen is not only one of my favorite kids movies ever. It's one of my favorite movies ever. Like I love, that's what happens when you have little girls and you watch movies you'd never watch otherwise. But then you watch them and you're like, this movie is utterly amazing. And so I got a bit defensive. But if you think about it, you know, what I came to realize is if all you know about Frozen is the song Let It Go, then no wonder some Christians have some issues with the song, right? No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. But <laughs> What makes Frozen so amazing is if you actually know the story, Elsa's idea of freedom, where does it lead her? It leads her to a life of absolute isolation, living in a snow castle or an ice castle all by herself with only one friend that's a snow monster. And she's utterly miserable. To give you a little bit more biblical example, I think that example is biblical, Think about the story of the prodigal son. What's the younger, what's the younger son say to, the, to his dad? Give me my inheritance. What's he saying? I don't want to live with you kind of hovering over me anymore. I don't want to live with you breathing down my neck or you telling me how to live. Give me my inheritance so I can be free. And the father obliges. He takes the money and where does it lead him? To a life of isolation suffering, shame, as he is working, feeding hogs, wishing he could eat the food he was feeding them. This notion of independence that we confuse with freedom, it always leads to isolation. And we see this probably most clearly and most truly in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve Ate the forbidden fruit, what were they doing? They were asserting their independence and autonomy. They were saying, No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. And they went from being in this place of absolute and total flourishing where we're given the image that they would walk with God in the cool of the day, that they were in love with one another, there was no shame, there was no fear, there was nothing but joy. The minute they assert their independence, what happens? They become isolated. They get isolated from God. They become isolated from one another. They wanna hide. They feel naked. They feel ashamed. Independence always leads to isolation. And this is why the common notion, the American notion of freedom, it's unworkable. When people find themselves in a place of no restrictions, constraints, or rules, it doesn't lead to flourishing. It leads to chaos. It leads to anarchy. It leads to Lord of the Flies. I mean, even think about our country. We we celebrate like our freedom as Americans. But freedom, freedom doesn't mean there's no restrictions. Freedom freedom is found in having the right restrictions. You know, after the Revolutionary War, what was one of the first things our founding fathers did? Wrote up a bunch of restrictions. It wasn't, we're going to live here and do whatever we want, and anyone can do whatever they want. It says, no, there needs, there needs to be constraints, but they need to be the right constraints. You know, in a similar but deeper way, in the Bible, we're taught that freedom, it's not the absence of restrictions. Freedom is found in the presence of having the right restrictions. Freedom, you could say, is not found in having no master. Freedom's found in having the right master. It's, it's living as you were created and designed to live. A couple weeks ago, I went on a fishing trip, and I know probably a lot of you don't fish, but I love fish. We catch these giant fish. They look like dragons. They're huge. It's a lot of fun. We always release them, too, if we can. And when you catch the fish, bringing them out from the deeps onto the boat, it's this exciting experience. Uh, but when the fish is on the boat, the fish suffers, now, in some ways, you could say, why? The fish is freer than it's ever been. It's no longer, you know, constrained to the, the darks and the, the dark, deep water. It's now free. There's not as much resistance. But the fish, if it's left out of the water long enough, it's going to die. But when you put it back in the water, it's amazing. Those fish are so fast. Like, they, they experience life. Freedom, it's not the absence of constraints, it's the right constraints. Now, what Paul holds before us here in Galatians is that Jesus came to set us free from the power of sin in our life, the condemning power and controlling power of sin in our life, and by restoring us to a right relationship with God. This is what he's getting at in verses 3 and 4, which is maybe one of the greatest, it might be one of the greatest summaries of the gospel in the entire Bible, when Paul tells the Galatians, grace to you, And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us, to set us free from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. He's saying at the very heart of the Christian life is peace with God. Now, this peace doesn't mean you just go on living however you want. This peace means that you can live as you were created to live that I think, you know, you have a lot of time on the boat. When I'm there fishing, if you pull the fish out of the water and sometimes it's hard to get the hooks out and they're sitting on the boat for a while and they're still alive and they'll still kind of thrash or flop every once in a while and you can see their gills grasping for breath. But sometimes I think that's a whole lot of us and a whole lot of humanity. And I would argue, according to the Bible, that, is us. That the life we experience, I mean, those fish, are still alive, but they're not flourishing. And so many of us, our lives, like, we are surviving like that. We might flop around a little bit. Our gills might move a little bit, but we're not really thriving. And what Paul, what he's laying out here is he's saying, Jesus has come so that we might thrive by reconnecting us with God. Whatever else you may want, whatever else you may think you need, your deepest need is to find peace with God so you can live as you were created to live. So that's the promise. He brings peace with God. There's also a promise that he delivers us from this present evil age. And really, you can make the case that Paul is saying this is why Jesus came. He came to give us himself for our sins and to deliver us from this present evil age. And it's interesting, Jesus doesn't say not he doesn't, or Paul doesn't say Jesus came to deliver us out of this present evil age. Paul doesn't say that's, you know, as soon as you believe, he's just going to snatch you up and you're going to disappear. He says he came to deliver you from this present evil age. And so what this means is that at the heart of what Jesus came to do, he, peace with God, but also he came to bring about radical change in our lives in the here and now while we're on this earth. So part of this biblical concept of freedom is who you are now is not who you always have to be. And that things that you are stuck in right now, you don't have to remain stuck in them forever. The promise of freedom is the promise for change and for growth and for hope. Part of the freedom Jesus offers is freedom from sin and sinful habits. And I just want to tell you, I know a lot of you here, you are struggling with certain secret sins. And those sins are hidden. Not really anyone knows about it. And they're doing damage to your soul. And you know that. I just want you to know, you don't have to live with that sin forever. You don't have to live being controlled by that forever. It's freedom from sin. It's freedom from, I think, anxiety and fear. This is a real personal one for me. I struggle with anxiety. This past week, I got to hang out with a mentor who's in his 70s, and we asked him about his spiritual life, and he was like, well, as I get older, I find myself thinking about my mortality a lot. And I was like, well, what's a lot? He's like, I don't know. Every day, I think about the fact that I'm gonna die and I started laughing because I'm like, I think about that five times a day every single day because I have an anxiety disorder and that's just how I think. And a lot of you here, you are, you are so afraid and you're so anxious. We are so afraid and we're so anxious. And it hurts our relationships. It keeps us up at night. It, it keeps us from, from really going and enjoying life because we're so afraid. Jesus came to set you free from that. The freedom he offers, it's freedom from self-consciousness. You don't have to always obsess over how you're doing and am I measuring up and am I being a good enough mom or dad or husband or wife or friend or employee or student or kid or son or daughter. You don't have to live constantly evaluating yourself. We have peace with God and we have hope for change. Who doesn't want that? How do we get it? That's my second point. This freedom, it's freer than you can comprehend. The big question of life is, okay, how do I find peace with God? What do I have to do? I love this idea of being free and being reconnected with God, but I also know my sin. I also know my past. In my mind, I can play, like hit replay on things I've done and said. Maybe it was years ago that I haven't been able to get over. How in the world can I find peace with God? I was talking with someone last week who said, I desperately, I desperately want what you talk about in your sermons, but I just feel dirty all the time. How in the world could God ever love someone as dirty as me? I said, it's by grace. What do I have to do? Nothing. Well, I got to do something. No. Well, yeah, I mean, I know that Jesus saves us, but like, what do I have to do? And I'm like, you don't don't have to do anything. It's absolutely free. You don't do anything to achieve it. You just, I mean, this is what you do. Open your hands. Like, I want to receive it. And it's so hard for this person to believe that. And it's so hard, I think, for us to believe that. This freeness, this freeness that Jesus offers us, it's absolutely free. And that's not because our sin isn't real. That's not because our feelings of feeling dirty or feeling guilty or feeling ashamed. It doesn't mean that there's not a legitimate basis for those things at times. What it means is Jesus Christ came and he paid the price that we could never pay out of his own initiative without us lifting a finger to help. I mean, it's telling that the first word for the churches of Galatia, you know, after Paul says, here's who I am writing to you, the very first word is the word grace. Grace to you and peace. Grace, it means unmerited favor. It's something unearned. And what Paul is saying here is that the heart of the gospel is grace. The gospel is not Jesus Christ built a bridge for you to be restored to God. Will you walk across the bridge? The gospel of God's grace is you were dead lying on the bottom of the ocean, and Jesus dove in, rescued you, and brought you back to life. You, contributed as, you contribute as much to your salvation as a dead man contributes to being resuscitated, which is nothing. God saves us single handedly, it's utterly free. And this is the gospel. That's why the gospel means good news. If we were saved by God's grace and our best efforts, that wouldn't be good news, would it? If we were saved by our blood, sweat, and tears and hard work, that wouldn't be very good news. The good news, the good news of great joy that's for all the people, as the angels proclaimed, the angel proclaimed to the shepherds at the birth of Christ is that you don't do anything. That Jesus offers it freely. Now, the controversy that's at the heart of this book, you gotta know these are churches that Paul planted. Maybe is you know, this letter might've been written less than like a year and a half after he planted the church. He's writing to his spiritual children, his friends, people he led to faith, saw baptized, folks that he dearly loved. And what happened was after he left, these churches, some teachers crept in. And these teachers, they were very, very religious teachers, very serious people, very, very smart people. These were the guys who would quote verses out of books you didn't know were in the Bible. They knew everything. And they crept in, and they started teaching something that was just a little different than what Paul was teaching, at least on the surface. They were known as the Judaizers, Or sometimes they're called the Circumcision Party, which is such a horrible name. You know, two words that should never go together uh, in the English language ever. But it's a fitting name because what these Judaizers, the Circumcision Party taught, is basically, yes, you need to believe in Jesus if you want to be saved. Yes, you got to believe that you're a sinner and that he died for your sins and rose from the grave. But they also taught that in addition to believing that, you also need to obey the laws of Moses. So all the laws about what you can eat and not eat, what you can touch and not touch, what you can wear and not wear. And in addition to that, all male converts needed to be circumcised if they were going to follow Jesus. And I'll just tell you, If you're new to the Bible, new to Christianity, if you're joining us in the series, the word circumcision is just going to come up a lot in this book. I'll never forget listening to a sermon on Galatians, and my dad was in the car, and he was not a believer, and eventually he's like, can you just please turn this off? I can't hear the word circumcision another time, because the book is filled with it. But you have to understand that circumcision here, it represents the much bigger picture of obedience to all the laws, And so these Judaizers came in, crept in, and they started telling the people, I know Paul said it's free, but it's... And it is free, but you have to get your act together too. You got to change your diet. You got to change what you wear. You got to change how you behave. And you need to be circumcised if you're a man. And Paul gets wind of this teaching, and he doesn't say, well, we're just having a theological disagreement Paul says that that teaching Jesus plus some obedience is a damnable lie. He said preaching that's another gospel, but it's not a gospel at all because it's not good news. And he says, if any man or even an angel teaches such things, they should be accursed. Now, evidently what happened, these, these teachers came in And they knew if they were going to gain traction, they had to try to discredit Paul. Like an attorney uh, who, you know, a prosecuting attorney who has a defense, the defense puts up a witness, you know, who's a star witness. The prosecuting attorney is going to try to undermine that witness in the same way. Like, how do we undermine and discredit Paul? And so we don't know exactly what they were doing, but you can imagine them saying, well, Paul's not really an apostle. You know, Paul, he wasn't one of the original 12 he doesn't really speak with authority because this word apostle in the Bible, it's a really, really important word. According to the New Testament, apostles were special representatives of Jesus that Jesus himself personally chose, called, and commissioned to go be his authorized representatives on this earth. And so when apostles spoke, they spoke with a unique authority. And this was a very small group of men, less than 20, in the early church. There are no more apostles anymore. If you, you meet someone and they say that they're an apostle, that's a real red flag for you. Because the apostles, they were men that Jesus, you know, a one-time deal to help start and plant the churches. And these men were saying that Paul wasn't an apostle. And that's why the very first thing that he says in response First line in the letter, he identifies himself, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And then he goes on, and all the brothers who are with me. And so what, what Paul is saying here, he's defending his apostleship, not because he wants to brag or say, hey, look at how important I am. He's saying, no, no, no. I have been appointed and commissioned and called by Christ, not by men. I didn't mail away to get my apostleship. I didn't go to school for it. Instead, Jesus blinded me. And for three days, I thought I was going to die. He appeared to me, he spoke to me, he redeemed me, and then he sent me. That's where my authority lies. And so throughout this book, Paul is going back again and again. I am an apostle. And what that means is what Paul says that's the authority. And what Paul says here is that we are saved by grace alone. Period. Some of you, are, you're here this morning and maybe you like the person I talked with last week. God's working on you. He's brought conviction of sin in your heart. He's kind of helped you see that the path you're on is going to lead to death, either physical death on this earth or spiritual death. And you're you're wondering, okay, what do I have to do? How do I change my life? How do I get right with God? That's a question I hear all of the time. And I always say, you just open your hands. You receive the gift he's given in Christ. You trust in him. But what do I have to do? Nothing. You just, I guess this. This. Is that that doing something? You just open your hands. So that sounds too good to be true. That leads to my last point. Freedom is harder than you think. Living a life of freedom is harder than you think. Evidently, the, the false teachers, they were gaining traction in these churches. And so in verse six, that's why Paul writes, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel. Paul says, I cannot believe. I am absolutely, totally astonished that you would take the greatest news this world has ever known and then you would pollute it by adding some things, by saying, you know what? I need to do this, this, and this too, to make sure that I'm saved or to contribute to my salvation. He says, I'm astonished. And I don't know if it's just experience in church. I'm not as astonished as Paul was. Because freedom is hard. Because I've been around Christians long enough to know that understanding the freeness of the gospel is really hard. There are three reasons it's really hard for us to live as free people. Number one, the gospel just seems too good to be true. As you are in your sins, your brokenness, your rebellion, your absolutely worst moments, God loves you enough to do everything to redeem you, regardless of your past, regardless of your present. Whatever you've done, everything from white lies to murder, the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover your sins. And we think, that sounds too easy. It's too free. And it is too free, but it's free. I don't know what to tell you. Nothing in life is free. I'm going to tell my kids that all the time, except for the grace of God. Nothing in life, but this one is. Now, this is hard to believe that God loves you fully, and ultimately through what Jesus has done, not through a thing you've done that's hard to believe in coming to faith, but it's even harder to believe after you've been following Jesus for some time. I think a typical experience for a Christian is you hear like, you don't have to do anything. Jesus, Jesus did everything. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. You know, he's washed us clean, all of that. And we're like, I want that. I want to be forgiven. I want to experience peace with God. And so we like, we pray, we confess our sins, we trust in him, we open our hands. He comes into our life and then we show up at a ministry or a Bible study or a church or whatever. And instantly we're started, people start giving us things to do, Right. Here are some books you need to read. Here are some activities that you need to participate in. Oh, and you need to have a quiet time. And a quiet time is, if you're serious, at least 30 minutes, probably an hour of time where you pray and you spend time with Jesus every day. And it's best to do it before the sun rises. That's when the, where the real, really serious Christians, that's when they do their quiet times. And it's like... You're like a kid and it's like, all right, take this, this, and your hands start filling up and then, oh, but don't forget that there's a whole world out there that doesn't know about Jesus and you need to go tell them about Jesus. So you got to do evangelism. And gosh, I preached this last week. Someone needs to serve. Like this place doesn't run on its own. So you need to serve. And so what happens over time is we accumulate all of these responsibilities. And then we start to think, gosh, I'm not very good at doing all of these. I mean, most of us, according to those standards, are failures because we weren't up at 5 a.m. this morning praying and reading our Bibles. If you were, congratulations. I'm sure you failed in some way before you got here. <laughs> if you still think you're good, then you're prideful, and we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> See, what happens is we, we bring all these things together, and over time, I forgot to mention, we've we got to say no to sin, too. We've got to fight against sin. So you're trying to do all of these things, but you've still got your own stuff. And before long, the gospel goes from being good news of great joys, great joy to being bad news with a whole lot of guilt. And you don't want to open your Bible because you already feel bad enough about yourself, and you're afraid if you open the Bible, you're just going to feel worse. Here's what I want you to hear. The gospel is free. You're saved by grace alone and you are sustained by grace alone. This doesn't mean that we don't do these. All those things are good things. Like they're things that I want you to do, but they're not, they're not things that if you don't do them, God's going to cease to love you. And they are not things that God judges or you know, loves you in regards to. His relationship doesn't change with how well you're doing on those things. I want you to read your Bibles. I want you to say no to sin. But no one prepared me for how hard sanctification is as a Christian. Saying no to sin can be really hard. Some of you, you have sins that you've been committing for 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, and they've worn ruts in your soul. Now, I firmly believe that you can get out of that rut, but I also know it's really hard and it takes a lot of effort. What I want you to hear is God's love for you is not contingent on you getting out of that rut as fast as possible. In college, I had this Bible study and the guy leading it, he would always ask, uh, at the beginning of the, the study, he'd have us go around and say, how are you doing with Jesus, scale of one to 10? I would ask you right now, how are you doing with Jesus? Scale of one to 10. Well, If you're like we were, what we would do is think like, well, did I have a quiet time every day? Did I have it once a week? Have I opened my Bible at all or prayed? Okay. Uh, What sins have I committed, particularly like scandalous sins? Okay. Have I talked about Jesus with anyone Okay, and you like add it all together and the, you like, you know, average it out and you'd say, I think I'm like a three or a four. Maybe on a really good week, it'd be five or six. Maybe the best week, it would be seven, but no one would ever get above a seven, right? Who's gonna say like, I'm at a 10 with Jesus? <laughs> the reality is though, we're all at 10s with Jesus by faith. I hated that question going around, you know what that's, that's encouraging? Hey, think that God looks at you differently by how well you're doing when the gospel is, no man, it's totally free and it's once for all. That just seems too good to be true. So I think some of us, we don't, we don't live in a life of freedom because it just seems too good to be true and we wanna go back to performance. I think another reason why it's so hard for us is because it, it demands the death of our pride. I mean, what the gospel means is that everybody gets a trophy. And I, I hate that in our world. I'm like, no, no, no. One kid gets the trophy, no one else. They all need to learn. Why do you, why do you give everyone a trophy? That's, that's not fair, right? What are, we, what are we saying when we say that? Like, they've earned the trophy. These kids, okay, they showed up and drank out of their water bottles, but they didn't sweat, they didn't work hard, they didn't do anything. They shouldn't get a trophy, well, what is that? That's pride. Pride is the notion that we're, we're better than other people. And to say that we're saved apart from anything we do, that we don't contribute one ounce to our salvation, that requires the death of our pride because it means that the YMCA absolutely got it right. Everyone gets a trophy in the kingdom of God. Regardless of how well they performed, Or how poorly. And that's so hard for us because we desperately, we don't want to just feel good about ourselves. We really want to feel better about, we really want to feel better than others. That's what we really want. C.S. Lewis, he writes this about pride. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They're proud of being richer or clever, or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich, or clever, or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride has gone. There are a lot of things in this world that can fuel our pride, like he just talked about, our wealth, our smarts, our good looks, that we can look at and say, I'm better But what we see in the church so often is it's not those things. It's how much of the Bible do you know? How well do you obey? Is there any sin in your life, you know, that's particularly scandalous? And according to those answers, that's the way you look and feel better about yourself. I just want you to know this isn't new. This is what was happening with the Judaizers, and it was part of their obsession with circumcision. Think about it. When you are a 40-year-old man and you willingly go under the knife to get circumcised out of your love for Jesus, that's some serious bragging rights, right? Like, here's how serious I am about loving Jesus. I am more serious than any of you. That's like becoming CIA, special ops, black ops kind of Christian because you're a devotion to Jesus. And you could look at everyone who wasn't circumcised and say, they're just, man, they don't take it as seriously. Like, they're superficial Christians. They're flakes, on and on it went with all of their laws, all of their rules. In the same way, to, to understand the freeness and to live into the freedom, comparison has to be put to death. You can't look at people and say, well, I know this more than they do. I know this theology. Or maybe they struggle with some sin that's like you consider particularly awful or disgusting. And so you look down your nose at them because there are respectable sins, but that sin, that's just gross or horrible. To experience freedom, we've got to put comparison to death. And I think part of the reason we don't live as free people is because we spend all of our time comparing ourselves. Jesus doesn't want us to compare. It seems too good to be true, it demands the death of our pride, lastly. The gospel prioritizes participation over performance. When most people think about Christianity, they think the heart of Christianity is how we behave, about getting our act together, that the heart, getting theology right, maybe for some of you, getting your life right. One of the things that really stood out to me this week as I was preparing this. In verse 6, when Paul confronts them, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. He doesn't say, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting Christianity or the gospel or right doctrine. He says, I'm astonished that you're deserting him. See, Paul knew that at the heart of Christianity, that at its heart Christianity is it's about... Participating in life with God its not about performing for God. It's about knowing God, not just knowing things about God. And this, this doesn't mean that our beliefs don't matter. Our beliefs absolutely matter. That's why I preach. It doesn't mean that our behavior doesn't matter. But the essence of Christianity, it's not performing for God. It's participating in life with God. And I think because we wanted to raise good Christian kids, you know, <laughs> 50 years ago, there's this hangover that's come with it, the, the assumption that Christianity, it's like you do these things, and this, we do this because we're Christians, and above all else, it's participating in life with God. And I think one of the greatest things that keeps us from experiencing a life of freedom with God is that we're so wrapped up in this this feeling that we need to perform. Like some of you, every day you feel like you gotta perform, especially you come to church and you think, I gotta put the smile on, I gotta put this on. You come to community group. And you don't feel free because you're like, I i gotta hold this all together. Well, God wants more than your performance. He wants you, and he wants your heart. You know, going back to the story of the prodigal, when he's finally had enough of his isolation, he decides to go home and he like schemes. And what does he scheme? He says, I'm going to go back and say, dad, I'll be a slave. Like if I can get back in the house, I'll be a slave. I'll work off my debt. I'll do all of these things for you. And so he comes, he prepares a speech. And when he gets back home, what happens? The father doesn't say, here's your bill. The father said, here's a ring for you. Here's a robe, let's have a feast. For my son was lost, but now he's found. He was dead, but now he's alive. And I want you to think about that kind of father and that son and what it was like for the son to live in the house after that. Like that's mind-blowing, right? You have offended your father, you blew all of his money, and he's like, hey, come and eat, come and feast, take my ring. Just come back in that's the love of God for us and that's the life that he calls us to, the life of freedom. So as we come to the Lord's table this morning, as we remember that Jesus gave himself for our sins when his body was broken for us and when his blood was poured out on our behalf, I pray for you as you come to the table, it would be a chance for you to ask, am I living into freedom? Do I... Do I know the freedom Jesus has offered us? And for some of you, you've never put your faith in Jesus, and maybe today's a day where you hold out your hands and receive the gift that Jesus offers of peace with God. For others of you, you've been following Jesus for years, but the gospel is no longer good news to you. And I pray that as you come to the table, you can lay your deadly doing down, and you can come and experience the freedom and joy of the Father the love that he's set upon you. Let me pray.